there, imposters, and welcome back to a, another episode of the You're Not Qualified podcast. My name is Courtney Heater, your host here, your imposter monster, imposter syndrome guide, kind of like the guide of the underworld, perhaps, you know, little mythology there, kind of feeling the vibes today. It's very fall feeling out there. I'm ready for it. Please bring it to me. And all of my uh, favorite shows are coming back out. My favorite podcast persons have books that came out for those morbid fans out there. Uh, Elena's book is out the Butcher and the Wren, and I'm so excited. It's in the mail, and I pre-ordered the gosh darn thing, and it's still in the mail, and that drives me crazy. <laughs> However, I will have it soon in my hands, and fall reading will commence along with other books that I have on my docket, such as Twist by... Alan Kolak, that was on the show, Skills uh, by Asha, that was on the show, so uh, Skills, the common denominator, that is. Very excited for this reading list, and so grateful that I always have all these awesome authors on the show that have really, really cool ideas that they literally go for, so also thank you all for being so inspiring. This is episode number 31 of season two and today we are talking about whales one of my favorite favorite subjects but not only about whales but also about becoming a nonprofit founder this is going to be part one of two parts of highlighting people who have started their own nonprofit businesses specifically in the conservation realm today we are talking with Whitney. She is the director and founder of Whale Scout, which is an organization in the Seattle area of Washington that works to restore salmon habitat. That's a very tiny portion of what they do. We get further and further into what they do, and it's very important and very instrumental in saving the salmon that the southern resident killer whales that live in the Puget Sound and Salish Sea surrounding waters, they eat that salmon. And that salmon is also in decline. So we get into that as well and what we can do about it, what people are doing about it, what is on the table to do about it. We chat about becoming a nonprofit founder and what that looks like, how you take that first step, any hurdles that she she uh, was faced with when she was pursuing this dream. She is a very inspiring, wonderful person. I volunteered with Whale Scout for a little while now, a few years. I love the work that they do. It's very, very hands-on. I'm so stoked that she decided to join us. So without further ado, I will introduce you to Whitney. Let's go. Ready for this? All right. So today we are chatting with Whitney Nagabauer, and she is the director founder of an organization nonprofit called Whale Scout that is predominantly in the Washington area, specifically around Seattle-ish. 
Uh, she is joining us today to talk all about becoming a nonprofit founder and a little bit about whales also, since it's an interest of hers and mine, and it's a very exciting time and trying time for the whales that live in the Puget Sound area near Seattle. So welcome, Whitney. I'm so excited you're here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a really exciting opportunity and something I think will be fun to chat about. <laughs> yeah, Definitely. I could go on for hours about this stuff. So this is really fun. I love starting with the question, why are you unqualified for what you're doing? I peeked at your LinkedIn. You have no nonprofit experience. That's also what led me to be like, oh, she's very knowledgeable about marine life, but running a business is something that's new. Is that right? Yeah. I basically went to college, went right into grad school and within a couple of years, founded my own nonprofit. I knew for a long time, I always liked running my own projects, being a bit of an entrepreneur. And it wasn't really a surprise to me that how things unfolded, but was I like formally trained to start a nonprofit? No. Did I work for other nonprofits? Not really. I dabbled for a couple of years and I did a lot of research and then I, I just I just started and I just figured it out as I went and it was daunting at the time and there were a lot of challenges, but you just figure it out day by day and uh, I'm excited to share you, with you more about it. Where did the idea come from for Whale Scout? What did it take to get it off the ground? How many years has it been? So I graduated from UW with my master's in marine and environmental affairs and it's in the Seattle area. And that's actually where I'm from and where I live today. And I have always had a connection with whales. And of course, the whales local to here that are really popular and downright famous are the endangered Southern resident killer whales. And so as I was a kid, we would always go whale watching and hang out at Lime Kiln and hope to see these orcas. I was read books as a kid and was just totally drawn to it. I don't know why it was just something that was sparked at a really early age. When I was in school, I did a couple internships with other research institutions and other nonprofits that were working in conservation and sort of dabbled around to see what was out there and what I might like and finished grad school, started working as like a short contractor for an organization and then realized, okay, this is not exactly the right fit for me. I don't know what is the right fit. So I took a step back and I volunteered for like as many groups as I could find to see what they were doing, what they were up to what their positions look like. I also volunteered to be on the board of a couple of nonprofits. So I got an idea of what things were like behind the scenes, how nonprofits work. And there's so many different kinds of nonprofits too. There's the teeny tiny like groups that are around a kitchen table that are really narrowly focused on one topic, or there are huge foundations that have massive galas and boards of directors with famous people and big time donors and things like that. And so there's like a huge range of where you can go. And a big challenge for me was to find my footing within like the whale world. And there's a lot of other nonprofit groups that are focused on recovering the endangered southern resident yeah. killer whales. And so I wanted to make sure that what I was doing was one, going to be impactful for the whales and successful, 
and wouldn't be stepping on anyone else's toes. That was a really big challenge. So that it took me a while to, um, to figure out exactly like what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. There's nonprofits that are doing education with school kids. There's other ones that are a lot actually based in the San Juan Islands, where we typically think these whales spend most of their summers, which of course is changing now. And advocacy groups working to change laws and regulations. It took a while and I leaned on some advisors and some friends and mentors who were very generous with their time and found that working to protect the whale's food through saving salmon and saving the streams that support them was a really good niche for me for mm-hmm. a few different reasons. One, because really no one else was doing that. On Surprising to me. Whale. Yeah. Yeah. There's other salmon conservation groups, which I also have leaned on for support. It's like drawing together the connection between the orcas that are eating the salmon and the streams and the trees was, was new. And it's gaining traction with the whole idea, I think, but it allowed me to have my own space because it can be competitive with other nonprofits that are going after the same funds. And there's a lot of sometimes big egos involved and they want it to be their thing or their cause. And yeah, it was a challenge to get started and and it was slow and I was careful. Mm. And I I had a lot of mentors who said, come on out, come look at this and let me explain why I think this could be an interest for you. And It just grew from there and it keeps evolving and changing. Yeah. You guys do so many different types of work from like community to really getting down in the weeds, literally (laughs) pulling out blackberry bushes, which I've done a few times. That mindset around funding for a nonprofit is so interesting to me because you are, you're fighting for resources, the finite resources of nonprofit funds, but In my mind, it would be like difficult to compete because everybody is after the same goal, but it's just in a different way, but you still need funds for your specific way. And you probably are with a lot of the other company or the other organizations. So is that part at all difficult for you? (laughs) It can be. It was the hardest at first. Yeah, because when you're like the new guy and you haven't really established yourself, it is hard. And I think there's just a lot of like mistrust that someone new is going to come in and try to take over or something. Mm -hmm. I don't really know what it is, but I just tried to tread carefully. And yeah, a lot of my colleagues, I do consider my friends. And for the most part, everyone gets along, but yeah, it's not always the case. And I've had to like, really think about that as I grow as an organization and as I hire interns and things like that is I need to be really mindful of the way you bring in new people into this, because there's just like a reality check for all of our groups is even if Whale Scout, my group completely fulfills its mission to restore riparian habitats on in streams in Puget Sound, it's not going to save the whales. It's not enough. And what I'm doing is a piece of a puzzle with what everyone else is doing with kids in schools and a museum and on the water education, the research that informs policy, all of that together is what's going to save the whales. And so it's really important to like, to be a good neighbor and to lift everybody up and to make sure that there's room for everyone to big a bigger puzzle that can really work even better to help save the whales, not pull pieces out. Like we should be drawing in more pieces and connecting them more. So I just, it's humbling to know that, hey, even if you are 
totally successful, it's not going to be enough. You know, fixing policies isn't going to be enough either. There can be some big egos out there sometimes. If anyone thinks that the one thing that they're doing is going to be the thing that saves them, that's just not, not true. true. <laughs> it just yeah, like, leave the ego at the door. Yeah, exactly. So I, that's what I've learned. And so, yeah, to make sure that you're helping others. If I see a grant come across my desk that I think would be good for someone else, I send it along and then they do the same for me. So we're trying to always help each other out. It's a good thing and a bad thing. Thankfully, there are some resources coming in to help the whales, but unfortunately, it's because they are so endangered and there's so much that needs to be done. So it's this double-edged sword. It is a very frustrating thing to be even a whale lover and know the plight that they're facing, that it took their population being like almost in the 60s, like number wise, to actually get real prominence and real help in terms of government assistance and a really big spotlight on them when all of this kind of started happening a long time ago. But it's like it was the snowball effect. But We will get into that a little bit more a little later. You did touch on the mission for Whale Scout. Can you go deeper into the mission for you, your nonprofit? Yeah. So our mission is to protect Pacific Northwest whales through land-based conservation experiences. So it's all about empowering people and bringing people together to do projects that take place on land that help the whales. So it's purposely broad so that we can have some flexibility in the way that we actually execute our mission. We started out back in like 2014, 15 with a team of land-based naturalists. And the idea was that they would all go out between Seattle and Tacoma and help people watch whales from shore. And they would provide education one-on-one with people and try to help encourage them to participate in stewardship actions And of course, join salmon habitat restoration work parties on the weekends. And that's really where it started. And then we started saying, okay, like, why don't we direct people to some very specific events? And so we started doing, I think it was four a year. And we would partner with another nonprofit and bring in all the whale people to try (laughs) to help their project and bring Mm -hmm. in that extra hands and energy. And that's how it all started. I think our first event was with Friends of North Creek Forest. And again, it was at the support of an advisor who said, let's work this out. He worked with both groups. And so that's how it started. And then we started working with King County Parks at a site that they were working on Maury Island that was like in critical habitat for orcas. And it just kept going. And we realized that that we could host our own events. And so we started working at Bear Creek, which I know you've been to before, got our own set of tools and started building up our own list of volunteers and our restoring salmon habitat on Bear Creek. In the last three years, we started a really big project with the city of Bothell, helping restore an old golf course, which is now a public park right along Mm -hmm. the Sammamish River, which is a migratory corridor for Chinook salmon. That's prime orca food. Yeah. And now we're doing events. I just worked on my fall calendar. It's every weekend we're doing things. And it's almost evolving to be like almost less focused on land-based whale watching and really focused on offering these fun events in salmon habitat that also offer cool education about orcas. We'll bring in school groups or scout groups and we'll do different educational games and activities outside that talk about the whales. So it's instead of bringing whale people to salmon habitat, we're bringing the whales to salmon habitat and all these educational activities there. And it's just been the way that it's evolved and 
we just have to go with what's working and not force anything, but it'll show you the way basically. Yeah, that's really inspiring there. You were talking about like pieces of the puzzle in terms of all of the different things that are impacting the wheels and all of the different organizations that come together that are focusing on those pieces. But also within your org, you have the pieces that are like, okay, people love to see the whales, obviously. So you have that. And then people also, maybe not the same people, but people love to also have a hand and physically helping. They want to be able to like tangibly offer their assistance. And that is very much so what the Bear Creek is, the former wing golf course is like along those water corridors. And it's so amazing, especially because I was out there a couple weekends ago and I'd come like maybe a year before that. And to see the progress at Bear Creek is just incredible. And for those that aren't very familiar, it's Washington is overrun with invasive blackberries and it takes over a lot of the land. And so we go out there and and Whitney's crew will pull out all the blackberry bushes and plant native plants and then try to create shade right around the river because the salmon are coming through and it gets really hot. So they need to cool down. So a lot of that foliage is supposed to be naturally helping. And I learned now that the beavers use some of that too, to create the dam. So you guys are planting and like telling the beavers, which ones they can take, which I found so freaking cute. (laughs) Yes. It has been a challenge working with the beavers. Like I said, we're always learning and yeah, they are ecosystem engineers. They're native and they're supposed to be here, but they will just mow down everything unless you're careful about it. So we try to offer some to the beavers and some (laughs) we try to preserve and have them eventually grow tall. It's because it's been so modified and so degraded that you really do have to hold the site's hand for a little bit until it can like go on its own. So training wheels until we can get there. And then we have these wire cages around the trees to try to protect some of them at least. Yeah, until the beavers figure that out too. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully, like they'll be big enough and strong enough to yeah. not be taken down, and they can take some of the undergrowth that comes back. Such like crazy smart little critters they are. Yes, adorable too. So let's talk about the networking aspect of what you do. Obviously, a lot of this is volunteer funded, and you have interns, so you are pretty skilled at getting people involved. I think I've seen, I don't even know, maybe three different sets of interns. And it's really incredible how involved all these kids are. How did you grow your network of these awesome people that are so passionate? Yeah, I think I have to give due credit to the whales. Like <laughs> the best at getting people energized. They're pretty likable. Yeah. yeah, like, hey, come help whales and be outside and be with friends. And so I, I give a lot of credit to the whales for doing that. But we also like I, I tell this story of, of this girl way back. She contacted me. She's really interested in the whales and she's from South Dakota and just moved to the area and missed the training. Can I talk with her? And I was like, yeah, okay. And set aside time to meet with her one-on-one. And we, I like gave her like the training, just her and I, and she went out on the beach and, and, and she's just been an amazing volunteer and she's not a volunteer anymore. She's like working as a coordinator with us and she's running our TikTok and she's doing all these different things for the organization. And it's really okay. Like you never know who you're going to meet and like what this connection is going to be. 
or like the seed that's here, where that's going to go. So I try to just say yes to as many people as I can and try to make as many connections as I can, because you never know where it's going to lead. I start with that, like at an individual level, we're always trying to get out the word on social media. Also, also like partner organizations that can help spread the word. We also try to make good connections with local colleges. I think all of our interns this year came from the joint campus, Cascadia and UW Bothell. Um, So we're hoping to keep building on that. They have amazing environmental programs. And so it's local to a lot of where we're doing our work. And so that's really important too. And yeah, really it's just the whales and being outside, I think (laughs) that really helps. Yeah. It's especially in the summer in Seattle. Like that's a wonderful time to be out there by the water. The, the interns, are they typically around the college age? We have, yeah, typically okay. um, we're between like 17 and up. Really, we don't have an age limit, but we do ask that they're students because really what we're trying to do and this, I never, when I started to Whale Scout thought that this would be something that we would be really focused on, but it's actually one of the most rewarding parts of what I do now is, is to work with student interns and we're trying to help young students get their footing in the field and offer experiences that they can take with them and bring in more diversity to the field. When I was coming up through college and grad school, it basically came down to who you knew and if you had a connection to a place and whether that was a nonprofit or a research institution. And they had internships where you had to pay to go there and be a volunteer. You had to pay to volunteer. Oh man. It's... You can imagine how that excludes a lot of people. So we've been really working to like turn that up on its head and say every internship position is paid and we're going to try to connect you with a lot of other people in the field and build connections and break down some of those barriers. So that's been a really cool part of it. And just to see, um, that different people take it different ways. And like one, one former intern is really into doing like wetland delineation work. And yeah, it's not going out on the water and like pulling ropes off the backs of whales or something like that as a career. It's something that we're trying to draw the connection to is also very important for whales. Yeah. It's been a really cool part of, of what we do now is like help grow the next leaders and environmental work. It's exciting to bring in some new faces every year and then see where they go. And a lot of the time they come back and they come volunteer on the weekends when they're home from college. It's so cool. I love that. I also saw that you had one volunteer event in Spanish, which is led by an intern, right? Yes. Is a Spanish speaker. Yes. So yeah, she's a native Spanish speaker and yeah. And as we're trying to open up and have all of our events be more inclusive, I asked, I said, I would love to have you lead this event in Spanish if you're interested. And yeah, she did a really amazing job. It was really fun to get all of our materials and get the word out. And yeah, she led the whole event in Spanish. And that was just a really fun thing. And I would love to do that again in the future and bring in other young leaders who can lead an event in sign language or in another language would be really neat. Yeah, that would be really awesome. So cool. Are the interns usually, so they are students typically, do they also typically study marine sciences? 
A lot of the time, not always, always interested to ask what they're studying and what their career goals are. I like hope that they go on to marine or environmental related fields, but they don't always. We had an intern who is, uh, she went on to Columbia University to study like astrobiology or something like wow on other planets and she's brilliant and very sweet and just a joy to talk to and she was wonderful in our internship program and has come back to catch up with us and it's really cool so you never know where everyone's off to but they all go on to do amazing things for sure. yeah I wonder if she discovered any life on another planet <laughs> maybe not in school but that would be amazing as like a career objective like yeah, discover right. on some planet. That's amazing. Wow. Astrobiology, at least it's biology of <laughs> some sort of the planet. But so what is next for Whale Scout then? How do you want to see it evolve? Yeah, we're coming up on about 10 years. And so we had wow. a really interesting annual meeting like last year. And it was all about taking a step back and like really looking at like where we've come, what we've done. And we've always just been like growing and as a healthy organization, we have to look at what's sustainable, what was important for the whales. And, um, and so, yeah, it, I don't, it, we're going to evolve and we're going to change and we're going to let it be a little bit organic, but I think we also have to be okay with like certain things, not going the way that we had hoped being able to drop some things off and just move forward in the ways that work, like doing these events in other languages, like doing mm -hmm. other community related things that are local to the sites that we're working at. So I would love to, to have the organization grow to include one or two staff and really help foster more of development in our programs, but we'll have to see, and maybe an intern or two will turn into a permanent staff position. I would love that. Yeah. That's such a cool opportunity if they could too. Yeah. What a treat. <laughs> you don't normally get to like also be a part of a hired staff after volunteering. So that's awesome. I have really a couple of questions that I'd love to get into that are around some policy work, as well as like the feelings that I have around nonprofits, which is it's tumultuous in my own brain, which sucks sometimes, but they're like so good overall. But before I get into those two, curious if you have like maybe two or three pieces of advice for anybody that wants to start their own nonprofit in the environmental space. Yeah, I definitely do. I would say to do it. Yes. <laughs> definitely do it. Find something that you're really passionate about and start small. I know with a lot of, I've seen other like friends and colleagues of mine do the same thing where, you know, you are in this mode of like exploration and you're volunteering for groups and you're working your normal job and you're saying like, is this the right fit for me? Do I want to do this job or do I want to take the leap and start something on my own or start my career over again? And I think like, from someone who started something from nothing, I kept working other jobs that were completely unrelated to the field. I also just, honestly, I had a spouse that was willing to help support this. And that was really big in order for me to do that. He on his own is also a business owner, profit business owner, and started small as well and kept working other jobs for that security. Explore, see is 
can I keep my job and volunteer on the weekends? Is that something that's going to be fulfilling or not? Can I have the security of keeping my job but reducing hours while I pursue something new on the side? So I would explore all those different options or go out there and make the big asks to people for seed money. I've seen other nonprofits do that where they have a couple angel donors that help along the way and pay their salary to like get something big running. That was a big thing for me. The advisor said early on, like reading through my grants, you're asking for too little money. Like you should really ask for what you actually need. And you're like, okay, I can do that. (laughs) Oh my God. That's awesome. I'm just going to pop in here for a little snippety snap of a, a section. Very, very tiny here. Ask for what you want. If you really want something, if you need something to be successful, to be happy, to move the needle somewhere in your life, ask. The worst that will happen is you get punched. I'm kidding. The worst that will happen is they'll say no and you move on, you revise it, you maybe ask again, but ask. You never know what could happen, what doors could open, what heaven could open if you just ask. If you need that, ask for it. What's the worst that can happen? They say no. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing if you're trying to go out to get like seed money from a foundation or something to start it or fiscal sponsorship. What's the worst that's going to happen? They're going to say no. They're not going to blacklist you or anything. You're just going to say no. Exactly. So that was like really important for me to hear. And then I have a friend of mine that like did that for a number of years, worked one job and then had like whales on the side Uh and then eventually took the leap and is doing amazing. So start really small in your head. I had grand ideas of what I thought Whale Scout would be before I started. And I just started with one little thing and built from there. So if you want to end homelessness, that's awesome. But can you start with like your city or like your street? And just make it really small and tangible and then build from there. That was like a really good thing for me to hear. And to just start, just to start somewhere, just start something small, even if it's not the big pie in the sky idea that you have, just start somewhere. And don't be like intimidated by the the paperwork and the legal stuff that you need to do to start a nonprofit. Yeah. It seems hard to navigate. it, It can be, but like I read like a book. And Uh, read some resources online. And the book was actually had great advice. It said, this is how you start a nonprofit in Washington state. And, you know, but don't let the paperwork be overwhelming and Mm -hmm. stop you from completing your mission. Like the work isn't doing the paperwork. Like the work begins when you actually are working on your mission. So just do the paperwork, check the boxes, move on. Of course, make sure you're doing everything legally, but don't let that stop you or intimidate you from moving on to do the actual work. So hearing that, yeah, it was like a pain in the butt to do it. Mm-hmm. Now it's a little bit easier, but so if you're starting small and just check the boxes, get it done. When it comes to doing things like taxes, yeah, ask for help. Find someone that like wants to volunteer for your cause that's an accountant and that can help do that stuff that isn't fun for you. But then they yeah. feel good about helping the whales by helping you. Yeah, you know? it's it's a big, it's an organization, right? There's moving parts here. You have to have a treasurer, which is probably also, you have to have the accountant, which is helpful. Yeah, all yeah. of that is, it all goes in to play. And some 
somebody gave me some interesting advice once when I was, it's you come to this blockade where you really want to do something epic and you want to make a big impact because you're really passionate about something. But the person told me, you don't always have to start something if you, especially not right away, but volunteer for another organization for a while. And you touched on that. Just go out and do something that fulfills you. That's in the same realm of where you would start a business and see if you even are still fired up or if that satiates you enough. And then maybe you can just help that organization grow rather than start your own thing. But if you have a big idea, go for yeah. it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I like, I tinkered with that too for a long time. Is it enough to go up to the San Juan Islands and volunteer all this time? Or is that not enough, right? Mm -hmm. Try it, at least see where it leads you. And you're building all those connections that will serve you in the future. Yeah. Don't be shy about it. Build those connections. Speak your passion and what you want to do and where you'd like it to go. And you never know who you're talking to or who's overhearing your conversation. So keep putting it out into the universe, I think. And you never know what'll happen. Absolutely. Manifesting is a big thing these days. So if just to speak it into existence, write it down, have it in front of you, uh, keep at it. Okay. So let's get into these two other topics that I'd love to talk about. It, the Southern residents, which are the whales here. There's also the transients that are like in the area, but the Southern, res- Southern resident killer whales are what eat the salmon that you are trying to protect and preserve through Whale Scout. So they're in trouble. That's no secret. They are endangered. They've been endangered for a long time. And your organization is doing a lot to improve that salmon habitat. There's also this big elephant in the room called the Lower Snake River Dams. I think there's four of them. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And they are blocking major salmon migration corridors. So work is being talked about to remove them. I said done at first and I was like, it's not started and it might not be, but the idea is on the table to remove them. And the governor of Washington is considering it because the salmon habitat and the the tribal impact, but there's the other side of it. Washingtonians rely a lot on hydropower for their very reasonable energy costs. What are your thoughts on all of the Snake River Dam shabacle for better, lack <laughs> yeah. of a better term? So yeah, Snake River Dam issues have been around for a long time. In the last, I would say, I don't know, six, seven years, it's really been tied closely with the plight of the Southern resident killer whales. The whales that we've been talking about, they we talk about them in the Sailor Sea or in Puget Sound but they actually travel between California and Canada, all in search of salmon. They're like you and I, where they need a good meal at least every day. (laughs) And they're not like gray whales or humpbacks that can eat a lot in one season and then migrate long distances without eating and back again. They cannot do that. They need to eat every single day or else they start having health issues, right? Mm -hmm. They're really thin. They start getting susceptible to diseases. They miscarry pregnancies. Toxins that are also an issue can make them very sick. So they need to eat all the time. And they're eating salmon from rivers between California and Canada. The Snake River historically and the whole Columbia Basin 
had some of the the biggest and the best runs of Chinook salmon. Mm -hmm. And nowadays that's not the case. There are a number of dams that, that the salmon on the snake river have to pass through both on the snake and on the Columbia to get all the way out to the ocean. So they're passing all these dams and each one presents challenges to um, of course, as an adult to pass, and then as a young salmon to go back through again. It's too hot. It's difficult, of course, to navigate past these obstructions. There's predators in the water that aren't naturally supposed to be there on a free-flowing river. And But yeah, of course, they were designed for hydropower and also for transporting goods to and from, from Eastern Washington all the way in Idaho, all the way through to oh, the wow. Pacific Ocean. Yeah. So a lot of people depend on them for energy, for transportation, navigation. And it's, it's been a big political issue in the state. The four lower Snake River dams are the ones that are most focused on because they are like the worst for the salmon mm. and provide the least benefit. Like they're, people use the term deadbeat dams, meaning like they're obsolete, they're old, they're not providing the benefits that they once used to we'd be better off with them removed. So of course there's interest to keep them in place for hydropower. They're touted as green energy and farmers in Eastern Washington, of course, want to keep them in for cheap rail transportation to port. Yes, it's been like a political nightmare really, yeah. but there's been some recent really positive steps and Governor Inslee and Senator Murray, along with other politicians in Idaho, more and more people and Oregon are calling for the removal of these dams. And they're saying, not only is it possible to do this, but it's the best thing for the fish. And so that's really important. It's also incredibly important for treaty tribes who depend on those fish today and have since time immemorial. So we're gonna need to fulfill our obligations to the tribes by restoring these salmon, salmon runs which of course to also benefit the orca. It's tying in what goes on in the state in Eastern Washington, way far away from the ocean, really does impact the whales and the whole ecosystem. So we're trying to we work on some policy issues where we're trying to help move the dial on this issue to help provide funding to replace some of the services like the rail lines or yeah, so the rail lines that would transport grains to port instead of using barges along the river. So mm. replacing those services and the energy switching to wind and solar instead of hydropower to work back that deficit if the dams were to be removed. So yeah, it's, it's a, a challenge and, but the whales would certainly benefit. We've seen other large dam removal projects like on the Elwha River, two dams were removed there and we're slowly seeing the benefits of that. Yeah. Was that other, those other dams also motivated by the tribal lands and the tribal people around them? I think I remember reading that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The, for I won't speak for the tribes, but for mm -hmm. a lot of them, the salmon are an integral part of their way of life. And those who have fished there don't see the fish that they used to see, and they can't harvest salmon, they can't use them in traditional ceremonies and things like that. And um, it's terrible. It's really a shameful thing that we think that we can control the environment and just reap all those benefits without having to pay any consequences. I think we're in the, an era of uh, dam breaching and we'll start to see more and more of it as we look at the infrastructure and just realize well, this isn't 
this isn't worth it. It's not worth the benefits that we thought that it would have. And we'd be better off taking them out, having a free flowing river and allowing the fish to return. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier now it's a federal problem. So they have bumped it up to the federal level for removal. Is that right? So it's always been at the federal level, Mm. but having state support is critical, right? see. Okay. Good. So if we start a petition to Biden, you think that would like, what is it? 200,000 signatures or something like that, that you need on petitions to the president? (laughs) There have been petitions. There have been Uh, many petitions. Yes. There's one on change.org that sat near the top for a really long time. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. There's been, I think going back to the Obama administration in his final year, people flying out to Washington, D.C., trying to lobby for an executive order for their removal. And yeah, then we lived through four years of Trump and now we're on Biden. And yeah, there's good progress being Mm -hmm. made there though. And also at NOAA saying that in order to reach some of the agreements on the Columbia River, that dam breaching needs to be on the table. And it also provides like the best chance at reaching those like harvestable healthy levels of salmon. And that is big too. That has not happened in the last five or so years. So it's really exciting. Good. But what a saga, what a political saga. That part is so frustrating. (laughs) It's so hard to get moving on these things, but the main takeaway is that movement is happening and there is, sounds like a pretty good chance that those dams, at least some of them could come down. Potentially. I think that more and more people are talking in a positive way about that. We definitely need to keep up the pressure, make sure more people are on board with it and get the funding to replace those services, invest in green energy, invest in ways to move, to move, to move grain in a way that is energy efficient and keeps the communities and the people in Eastern Washington working the jobs that they want to work and happy and healthy. That's really important too. Like people are part of this ecosystem. We have to work for everybody here. So keeping the pressure on the federal level is definitely important. Great. I'm going to add so many things to the show notes for people to take action. And hopefully there's a lot more to come on that information. All right. The next question that I have for you, and then I will probably stop, stop chatting at you and we can close it out. But I, and I'm going to tread lightly because this is something I've struggled with myself because I feel sometimes like a bad person, the way I think about nonprofits, because it's just frustrating to me how they sometimes don't benefit the people that are putting blood, sweat, and tears into them. I love the missions. I absolutely believe they're a force for good. I love Whale Scout. I organize beach cleanups on the weekends. And it's just, it's an important part of community and important part of giving back. And nonprofit makes sense because you want to give those profits to your cause. So the causes start from the best intentions and you jump in with two vigorous feet and you want to make the change. You want to keep it going, but then the cause can often become so much larger than you ever imagined And the task might even feel Sisyphean, taking out blackberry bushes and everything. And you can see the progress, but it's just so far to go in terms of restoring an area. And maybe like a Bear Creek is the example. How do you deal with that? A lot of people call it burnout, where it's you just feel like you can't get there. And how do you overcome it? Yeah. Yeah. Burnout is a real 
issue and mm-hmm. not just in the nonprofit world for a lot of people, burnout is mm-hmm. big. For me, I spent some time like thinking about this question. And for me, I totally have different triggers that send me into a spiral of like negative thought. Mm. And the first is like a grant rejection. You spend a lot of time and you get your hopes up and then you get a no or a block somewhere else. And it's, oh my gosh, they don't think the work I'm doing is important. They don't value it. They, I'm getting behind the times and I'm not innovative enough. And I'm not like, you can just see the spiral going and I need to reassess everything I'm doing. And it's all garbage. You can burn it to the ground. Yeah. yeah. See yourself spiral quickly. And I kind of let myself like feel that out. Other things like there's like a, a real tragic event that happens with the whales, like a breeding age female dies tragically that is really hard and a lot of my friends and colleagues and I like like it's we get like really discouraged or just a really discouraging meeting where you have other stakeholders in the room that don't want to budge an inch and Mm -hmm. things like mistrust and we're making backwards progress that can be really frustrating but so for me I like to like I take a little break. I like to do go outside. That's like my thing to decompress and try to like find that connection. In the summertime, I like to go up and sit on shore and hope to see the whales. I also like to go to the locks and see the salmon migrating through. Every once in a while, especially when you're dealing with an issue that's like so far removed, I like to like look that species in the eye (laughs) who I'm trying to help. It's not like working with kids where you see them every day. You get those like good feelings. It's every day I'm in my office or I'm hacking at blackberries, right? It's, it can feel far removed, like taking a break and reconnecting. I also love reading books about other like strong women. I love reading books by Alexandra Morton. I don't know if you've read any of her work, but she, oh gosh, she's so wonderful. And you can put it in the show notes that her books, and she's just, she's a a killer whale biologist turned like independent scientist studying salmon and fish farming. And she, her husband tragically dies like early in her career. And she just forges forward ahead alone and does really amazing work. But she also has good advice on self-care. She talks, she tells a story of like how she literally worked herself sick Mm. and finally took a break and stepped away from work and like physically started to feel better again. So it gives you permission to be like, okay, like I can't do it all. I need to step back. I need to shrink these things down. I need to ask for help in order to make these things work and just remembering again like it's not you that's going to save the whales it's not you alone like it has to be everybody pulling together and so don't take it so personally check your ego again that's hard it's so hard but yeah burnout is a challenge and it's sad to see to a lot of people in the whale world who did amazing work and were so passionate and the politics and the frustration got to them and they've moved on to other careers. And I think that's a real tragedy. We really needed everybody in the fight. So yeah, checking in on your colleagues too, I think is important to find space for everybody. And I don't, it's be ashamed to lose more people to like infighting or things like that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Take care of yourself. Go stare at the fish. The locks here are really awesome. So that's a cool idea (laughs) when they're migrating. And the migration is the end of September. It starts, right? When it really picks up to see them. Yeah, they're 
let's see. So it's the first week of September now. Yeah, like late August, the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife has a website where you can track the numbers every day mm. that go through. You can see where they're at. But yeah, go quick. And then in the fall, the fish will be coming through the streams and the rivers. Our Bear Creek site, if you're local, is actually really amazing to go see. Usually it's like the third week of September. And since it's a fairly small stream, at least where we are, it's not too deep. You can see the fish coming through past the restoration site. And we're going to host an event and try to on the 18th of September and try to like coordinate a work party with salmon viewing. And sometimes like last year I was there and we were doing this big vegetation monitoring project, like measuring and assessing the health of all of our planted trees. And we just had to stop and be like, you know what? The fish only come through here like a two weeks during the year. Yeah. We're here the other 50 weeks working. Let's sit down and enjoy this because yeah. this is a miracle of nature that we need to enjoy and give to ourselves right now. So I think that's really important too, is just yeah. see the beauty in it. And your work there is literally to make their passage safe and comfortable. So you should just enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah, Enjoy seeing them. Have the numbers increased? Have you realized in the Bear Creek site for salmon, like year over year? There are people that do monitor that and they do surveys where they walked the stream and look for salmon reds, like the nests. Things vary wildly with salmon Mm. from year to year. So it's hard to say. We also do water quality monitoring and it's been pretty consistently good. So that's good news that we've seen. So it, it seems like it's going really well and it's very promising. Good, good, good. I'm happy to hear that. And it's really beautiful sight too. So that's really good work there. I have just the little bit last of that one question. Do you have another five minutes? Yes. Okay, perfect. The, The other side of that coin of nonprofits being a little bit of a burnout area is the financial aspect of it. But You did say a little bit ago, don't jump in right away. Keep the stability of another job when you're starting a nonprofit, all of that. And obviously nothing to do with your personal finances, but in general, it is not a lucrative career to be in the nonprofit industry as a founder or somebody that's working in it. And I strongly believe that in order to get yourself fully to something, you need to be taking care of yourself and be able to travel and comfortably live your life, eat nutritious food, which is not cheap, especially now. How can a person keep that fire and the passion for their cause when it's not making their lives easier financially? Yeah. Yeah. That's really hard. And yeah. So being careful about the way that you start and the investments that you make. Like I used some personal time and I kept my expectations really low. I said, I'm not gonna make a dime at this for many years and I'm gonna be okay with that because I'm gonna keep my other job. I know I have a place to live and I need to just be okay with that. And so I kept my expectations very low like that. And I did invest a little bit of money and I wasn't, too, I was a little bit shy about asking for financial support to like to get things going, whether it was like family members or friends. Yeah, I asked and a lot of them were supportive and I went for those grants. There's some grants that are specifically targeted at 
grassroots organizations are just getting off the ground. They don't even have 501c3 status. So try those. Mm -hmm. Block off a weekend when you're not at work to put it in and just try it. If it's something that you really want to do, you'll be able to find the time to do it. And for me, a lot of the work doesn't really feel like work. A lot of it certainly does. And I'm like budgeting. I'm just, I'm really careful about it. I kept my other job. I started small. And I watch and I still watch every single dollar that we spend where it goes. And I'm writing grants that are like a year in advance. So I know what's coming, what I have a year from now, what I don't have so that I feel that financial security in what I'm doing. I tried to never overextend, even though that's really tempting, right? Like you see a huge need and a huge gap and your heart is fully in it and you want to do it, but you sometimes have to just say, I can't do that right now. I can't have five full-time staff people, even though I know five amazing people and there's five amazing programs that could be done. Like, I just, I can't do that. And that's, that's hard. And we've just set little goals along the way to be able to make it financially feasible. So yeah, I know it's it's like really hard to see these big, amazing ideas and not be there right away, but it takes a lot of patience and a lot of time and a lot of hard work. And like before you're going to be halfway there and then you're going to be even closer and you're going to get a windfall on something and that's going to lead to something else. And the persistence is everything. I've seen it in other colleagues that get an amazing job at one one organization and then things fall through and then they have to support themselves for a while doing other jobs and then they pick some a teaching gig up over here and then they pick something else up and then before you know it, they have their own boat and it has their own logo on it and it has all this stuff and it was like a lot of hard work and toiling and then all of a sudden it's like they made it and you think oh how did they do it and it's like she worked her ass off for a long time. Okay? <laughs> yeah, it's that iceberg, right? That's all. Yeah, exactly. there's like tons below it. There's like years and years of being broke as shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it's you don't think about that. Well, they just arrived there. You don't see it. And when I started as a like my nonprofit, I looked around at other ones, and it was like that guy that runs that group, like. He was never a director of a nonprofit somewhere else. Like he just had to start it and do it and figure it out and grow. And same thing over here and over there. And everybody started at nothing. Why am I any different? The only difference between me and him is like 25 years of experience. And that's not my fault. I just have to live through that 25 years of hard work and maybe I'll be there or I'll be somewhere else that I was a better fit anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Hard work makes a big difference and just don't give up. Don't give up. Even if it gets hard, just pivot and take a walk outside. Such, such good advice. I thank you so much for being here, Whitney. Where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me. Our website is whalescout.org. We're on Facebook and Instagram and we have a whole suite a lineup of fall events that we're about to release. And so if you're interested in getting your hands dirty to help save the whales, I welcome you to come out to any of our salmon habitat restoration events. One really cool one that's coming up is going to be October 15th and it's called Orca Recovery Day. And it is a whole, it's a big regional event in Puget Sound. It's led by the conservation districts and it is all about on the ground volunteer work that helps salmon habitat, which helps the orcas. And so we're really happy to be a part of that. We are gonna have an event at the Former Wayne Golf Course where for the first time 
in three years, we are going to be planting instead of just <gasps> ripping out weeds. I am so excited. That's so exciting. Yeah. Yay. Oh my gosh. Those blackberry bushes were the bane of everybody's existence, but look at this. That's yeah. amazing. Beautiful area too. You can come out and pick or now plant, you can come out and plant and watch dogs. People walk their dogs all over there. And I loved that part about the former Wayne golf course. It's a big park, but that's yeah. awesome. Great. We'll put that all in the show notes as well for people to join, especially if them in the Seattle area, but yeah, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And this was really fun. If you are not inspired by that conversation to go out and do the damn thing, I think you're hopeless friends. No, it's okay. It'll be okay. Just go back and listen to bits and pieces, especially if you want to start your own nonprofit or join a nonprofit in your local area that's doing something for conservation. Everywhere around the world has something that needs help in terms of what lives in the ecosystem. And as Whitney said, humans are part of the ecosystem. So does a person need help? Does a group of people need help? Does that river that's near your house have an endangered species in it that could use some more shade, that could use some advocacy for not rerouting a river or not damming it up? Does the forest near you have any species that could use some advocacy for uh, no more logging in the area? Do they need advocacy because they were inundated with forest fires that have been a huge issue you know, for a very long time, but it seems that they are getting more plentiful and a lot worse. There's things everywhere that you could get involved in. You don't have to start your own nonprofit. Um, you can always just get involved. But the crux of this episode is to encourage you to start your own nonprofit. And if you are feeling pulled in the direction to do that and your North Star encompasses starting something like that, then please go for it. Reach out for help. Reach out for mentorship. There's tons of people out there that are more than happy to talk to you about their journey. Share this episode with a friend who might be considering going into the nonprofit space and they're not quite sure what to expect. This is a good place to start in the research. Whitney is just a wealth of knowledge in starting Whale Scout and the issues she's faced financially, the issues the you know the org has faced financially the issues that they've had with like getting their name on the map and it's a really hard thing to try to save something that is almost so far gone it's so hard to keep momentum and go after it day after day when it feels like a lot of things are working against you, but there's a lot of light in it. There's a lot of good in it. There's a lot of success in the little things that you see when your work starts to pay off. And friends, I really hope for you that you have those feelings of success and you see those little bits someday because it's a really, really awesome feeling. I don't have a nonprofit, but I love participating in the nonprofits, seeing the work that's being done and that work turning into tangible change is awesome. I think you should get involved because it's very, very, very cool. 
I'm going to list where to find me in the show notes and also find Whitney in the show notes, find Whale Scout where you can look at the the calendar that they have coming up so you can volunteer, that change.org petition that she mentioned. There is another petition, Columbia Riverkeeper, I'm adding in the show notes. She also mentioned Alexandra Morton, who's dedicated 30 years of her life to the salmon and the whales. Uh, Her book is linked there as well, Not on My Watch. All of that for you to dive in and learn more and get more involved. Shall we have a little bout of trivia? So in the very first episode of this podcast, the very first interview episode of this podcast, so technically the second because the first was introduction, but you know, who's keeping track? I interviewed Chris Butler-Stroud. He is the chief executive at Whale and Dolphin Conservation, and he is incredible. In that, I gave the trivia that all dolphins are whales, but not all whales are dolphins. One of my favorite pieces of trivia, and I'm going to expand on that and tell you, which is something you might actually know by now, but killer whales are actually dolphins. So they are, or killer whales are actually dolphins, yes. They are toothed whales. So dolphins have those teeth, and then a lot of the, the whale whales have the baleen, which is a really uh, stringy type filtered teeth that catch you know, like the herring and such that they eat. But yeah, the southern resident killer whales are actually dolphins. They are amazing. Their numbers are declining. They are in trouble. They are missing a lot of the salmon that they eat. Their preferred food source, Chinook salmon, it's also in decline. And they also are having troubles with vessel noise disturbance and toxins in the water altogether. Those things are contributing to their decline, um, not super exhaustively. And there's groups, as Whitney was saying, that are playing a piece of every bit of that puzzle and attending to every piece of that puzzle to come together to save these whales. It's a very pivotal moment for them and for everybody that loves them. All right, I could talk about whales forever. Anybody that knows me knows that. And I won't because not everybody feels the same way as I do. But I hope that you're inspired to at least get out and do something that does inspire you, friends. I cannot wait to hear all about it. One more plug. If you feel like you would be a good guest for this podcast, please email me ynqpod at gmail.com. If you have a story about imposter syndrome and you're not like really, you know, Jones in to be a guest, but you're like, hey, I'd love to share my story. I will read it on another podcast at the last Tuesday of this month, ynqpod at gmail.com. Send them there too. I would love to hear from you. And until next week, friends, I bid you adieu. Goodbye.